All right, happy to have you here tonight. We, are, we took a week off from the Genesis track uh, on the, in the lectionary, so we are back on the reservation when it comes to the liturgical calendar, and we're picking back up uh, in Jacob's story, which we have been following for a, a couple weeks. Now, a lot has happened since we last saw our anti-hero a couple weeks ago. Uh, last time we saw Jacob was when he had burned all of his bridges, stolen a blessing and a birthright, and been kind of chased out of town because uh, his brother wanted to kill him, and he ended up by himself someplace and having this vision of stairway going to heaven with angels coming, going back and forth between heaven and earth and coming into what we call uh, a liminal space or a thin space, a place and a time in someone's life when they begin to finally kind of see uh, the matrix around them, so to speak. They begin to see how close heaven and earth really are to each other. And he has this profound moment where God then blesses him uh, and uh, Jacob responds in an interesting way that we'll talk about uh, again in a minute uh, where he uh, gets blessed with grace and then responds with some kind of weird contractual obligation for God. But uh, so he had that and then he was on his way to go back to where uh, his uh, grandfather was from to uh, find a wife that was not a Hittite and um, since, well, we missed last week, because we, we jumped into the New Testament last week, was his whole marriage debacle. And what happens, uh, it, shortly speaking, is that he ends up uh, marrying two sisters. Not, not his two sisters. They are sisters to each other. Uh, they are his cousins, I think, or second cousins. So it's all in the family. But uh, he ends up accidentally marrying one sister and then marrying another. And then those two sisters get into uh, a baby birthing contest uh, to see who's the best wife. And they even bring in their servant girls into this because apparently that counts towards your stats. Uh, and it just gets all kinds of messy, right? And so that's, that's what we missed. And I apologize. It's very Jerry Springer. It would have been a lot of fun to talk about, but we had to kind of keep, keep going. So uh, no one wins in a baby-making contest, but this is where they are. And then Jacob then begins, after 20 years away, to head back to where he was from. Uh, he has already been blessed with all these wives and uh, servant girls and all their children and flocks of all these things. All these blessings that God had promised were coming are all coming to fruition. But now he is supposed to head back to the place that is promised. And the problem, of course, is that his older, stronger, more outdoorsy and angrier brother, Esau, uh, is still there and is still angry at him. In fact, wanted to kill him uh, last we heard. Uh, now, when Jacob begins this journey, he encounters some angels, and there's some interesting things that happen there. Uh, but he sends out some messengers and finds out that Esau has a whole lot of men with him and are getting ready to meet him, which makes him even more scared that he is getting ready to meet his demise with his brother, right? Uh, he can only assume Esau still wants him dead. This makes the homecoming precarious. And so Jacob begins to do this thing where he splits his parties into sections and sends them one section at a time to try and offer some things to Esau to appease him and to hopefully soften him up before he eventually sees him again. And I think even though it's not an electionary, we'll probably talk about that story where they meet again uh, next week. But eventually everyone gets sent ahead and Jacob is once again, like we saw two weeks ago, although 20 years later, left alone at night someplace. Um, and so that's what we're looking at today. And we're in Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through 32. And it's a very famous story that most of you have probably heard before. And Jacob, again, once again, finds himself 
uh, alone. And it says this, uh, verse 22, the same night he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip, hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place, so Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the thigh muscle that is on the hip socket, because he struck Jacob on the hip socket at the thigh muscle. The word of God in scripture for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. What a weird little story here, right? And what is most frustrated commentators about this passage is honestly what I want to talk about tonight and what I like most about it. And that is that there are so many questions left unanswered. But those blanks are worth paying attention to. Who is this mysterious man that comes to wrestle Jacob? Is it a physical person actually physically wrestling him? Is it a vision of some sort? Is it a psychological struggling he's doing before meeting his brother and maybe his death? Is it God incarnate or is it an angel which he had spoken to earlier in the story? Is it Jacob's own demons or some version of Esau that he's wrestling with? These have all been written about and talked about as possible interpretations over time. You can make some educated guesses based on context clues and try to tie it together, but none of them are real needed. If it is God in the flesh, then why can't God just pin him and beat him, right? All kinds of questions that come up, no matter how you answer it. In fact, what's interesting also to me is that this opponent seems kind of perplexed or put out that Jacob would even try to identify him at all. There's just a lot of mystery around this story. But maybe there's a reason why we aren't explicitly told a name. Now I want you to keep in mind, remember who Jacob is and how he has behaved up till this story. Jacob is a trickster. He's a manipulator. Jacob is one of those people that just has a good sense of who is who, how to get them to do the things he wants. He knows how to move people like they're chess pieces so he can end up winning and getting what he wants out of them. That's who he is. He works people for his advantage. And then when there's going to be consequences for that, he does what any tough guy does. Runs. Just really runs fast, right? Last time, he did all of his trickster stuff, and he did all of his manipulation, and then it was coming back to haunt him. He had to run. And last time we saw him on that run, he was forced again to be alone in a strange place. And God mercifully shows up to him, though he doesn't deserve it, and offers grace. God blesses the trickster, comforts him, reassures him 
about a blessing that will come his way, shows him this thin place in the world where he can clearly see that heaven and earth are far more connected than he ever understood before that. God offers grace, but Jacob is still the heel grabber, which is what his name means. He is still the manipulator. He is still working the board. Even though God has offered to bless him with no strings attached, if you go back to the story again and remember, two weeks ago, you can go to the podcast if you want to. Remember, he offers a conditional response to God. If you do these things for me, then you will be my God, which is an interesting thing to try to do to the God of the universe. Jacob uh, is not, he's an anti-hero, right? Now, if I'm honest, um, I kind of relate uh, to these less flattering parts of Jacob. In fact, he's a pretty solid representation of a lot of my life of faith, particularly when I was younger. I also fled from difficulty and conflict as much as I could, even when I caused it and it was my fault. Uh, in my younger faith, I was sincere in believing in God, but I spent most of my time thinking about myself and trying to manipulate the world around me to get me what I thought I needed or wanted or deserved. I was a spiritual narcissist, to be sure. I believed in God, definitely believed in God, but ultimately God was there to bless me on, and give me what I decided I deserved from God. And if in my estimation God failed to do that, well then I would just have to take my talents elsewhere. It's a tough loss for God, but maybe you should have thought about that before not giving me what I wanted. I've had more than my share of experiences with that kind of narcissistic faith, that kind of manipulative faith that's really all about me. I'm sure many of us have. I mean, you're probably more spiritual than me, but a lot of us in this room have had those experiences. It is God on our terms, the world on our terms, other people on our terms for our ends. God is named, God is understood, God is controlled, so to speak. Or at least we think that's how it's working. For 20 years, this has been Jacob's posture. But now he is going home. He has to face it. He is going home to all the chaos and all the wreckage that this way of operating in the world has created. All the chickens are coming home to roost. He must face a brother who is bigger and stronger than him who wants to kill him. He doesn't have any control like he would like to have. He can't run away from it like he would like to run away from it. He is not sure what to do, and he is freaking out. In fact, just before our text, he offers up a prayer to God that is the first kind of humble thing you see come out of Jacob's mouth, so you know he's desperate. He even indicates, I don't deserve everything you've given me. That's a big step for our Jacob. Jacob is facing the reality that we all must face sometime in our life. Uh, St. John of the Cross referred to some version of this as the dark night of the soul. You can call it judgment. You can call it the chickens coming home to roost. Whatever you want to call it. Either way, Jacob has to face, God has to face those in his life on their terms, not his. Jacob is isolated, and he's vulnerable again. And this time, the divine feels as much like it might be a threat as it is a blessing. He can't run, he can't control, he can't manipulate. Instead, Jacob has to wrestle. In the dark, by himself, against someone or something he can't understand 
and can't overpower. He can just hold on for dear life. The not being able to name what he fights and what exhausts him, to me, is part of what makes this scene what it is. This is why I have no desire to try and answer the question that the mysterious man will not answer in this story. It would rob the story of some of its power and universality. Because we have all had the nights. We have all had the nights when we are exhausting all of who we are, trying to pin down that which we cannot make total sense of. Something that feels just out of our understanding and grasp. I imagine you've been there too. And while this is a story of Jacob and Israel, as he will uh, soon be called, although it waffles back and forth later on in the, in the text, this is also a story of all of our faith, I think. We all end up having to face this kind of thing at some point. No good answers. None of our working categories function anymore. Struggling in the dark against something we don't understand. Wondering if God is a blessing or a threat or somehow both at the same time. And either you wrestle or you don't. And Jacob, for all his faults, decides to fight. Jacob wrestles. He fights the dark night of his soul. And I think that's worth commending. While there is much to criticize about Jacob, we should applaud this. Because I don't know about you, but I was never taught to wrestle with God or faith. I was taught to submit. I don't mean submit to God in the positive sense of ordering my life under God's love, which is ultimately the goal of our faith. I mean, we were told not to ask questions or to wrestle with anything, right? I came from a high authority kind of church setting. We were expected and, and taught to listen, to memorize, to accept, and to, although they never said this, shut up. The pastor spoke for God, we were the empty vessels that received this truth enthusiastically if we were good members. And if we ever did publicly struggle or question or contend, it was considered a sign of spiritual illness, something to be fixed immediately. It was a problem to be solved, not a discipline to undertake. In one of the great moments of my life, my own mother got into it with our pastor once. And you need to know something about my mother. She was arguably the most agreeable person that's ever existed on the face of this planet. My mom talked to telemarketers. She wouldn't even tell them no and get off the phone with them. She was so agreeable, she would have 20-minute conversations with telemarketers from whom she did not intend to buy anything whatsoever. That was my mom. But the pastor once came and guest taught in her Sunday school class, and as was part of the theology in the church I grew up, he let her know and told the class about the good news that there were some people that were created to go to hell. My mom disagreed with this, and shocking to me, and I have a hard time picturing it, disagreed with the pastor in front of the class uh, about this. Um, she tr and uh, since she disagreed, he aggressively tried to set her straight in front of everyone. Uh, she wouldn't go for it. But this is how it went in our church. Even my mom, the lover of telemarketers, would get set straight if she disagreed with anything. You submit. You don't contend. But I think we have something to learn from the very flawed character of Jacob. After all, this is the one that God chose to name 
Israel. The grand story kind of hinges on this very flawed character. And one of the things about Jacob that we must confess to is that Jacob would not passively accept anything. He questioned, he justified, he argued, he wrestled in one way or another all the time. Some of you have this child in your house. He was not a passive recipient of anything, even what God had. Jacob contended, and he contended with God. I had no idea you were even allowed to do that. I just swallowed my questions and tried to live with a cognitive dissonance. I'm not sure if any of you had that church experience growing up. In fact, when I got to seminary, when I was about 23 or 24, I had my own disorienting dark night of the soul every day for a year. I spent a couple semesters having everything I thought I had my hands around and everything I knew for sure about God and theology in this world broken to pieces and challenged. And I either had to roll over or I had to fight. And I spent a whole lot of time feeling vulnerable and confused while wrestling with something and someone I no longer understood and could not easily name. And it's the best thing that ever happened to my life of faith. I would argue that you are made to wrestle. You'll remember us talking through that awful story of Abraham binding and attempting to sacrifice his son for the Lord a couple weeks ago. And you might remember that where we ended up on that story, my contention, based mostly on a book I had just read that I really liked, I, I land on the idea that Abraham was not supposed to be silent in that moment. That when the request was made for him to murder his own son, he should have argued with God. He argued for saving Sodom and Gomorrah, even though they were terrible and he didn't know them, but for some reason he didn't contend for the life of his sons. And nothing is the same in the family or the storyline after that moment, after that decision. Abraham proved he was committed in that moment, but he failed to wrestle in the night. He just rolled over. And why would God want that from anyone? So I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to be like Jacob. Maybe not in every way, but in this way, be like Jacob. Be ready to rumble with your creator. I would like to think that we are the kind of community that encourages the fight. That a living and active God wants us to actively engage. To ask questions, to raise our hands, to protest and to fight and to contend for what is good and what is true and what we are trying to wrap our minds and hearts around. To honestly wrestle with a God who is fully equipped to deal with it. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to fall in line with me or anyone else. You don't even have to have the first blank filled on this questionnaire. Just keep fighting for it. Don't roll over. Don't run away. Contend with God. God can handle it, and you need it. Now, it might be exhausting. It might ruin some things that you've always held dear. There's even a good chance that you're going to walk away with a limp that you didn't have before. And that's okay. You could also leave with a brand new name and the faith to face what scares you most in the world. It's worth the fight. So get in the ring and let it fly. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are thankful that you are not 
a creator who, se- who expects us to just passively sit and receive. That you are a God who challenges. That you are a God who seeks people who follow, who question, who wrestle. God, may each person in this room know that they don't have to just sit quietly on the questions they have or the blanks they cannot fill in. May each person in this room be so secure in your love that they know they can ask whatever they need to ask. They can challenge what they need to challenge. That they can wrestle. That it may turn out they were wrong. That it may turn out that they have a bit of a limp they didn't have before. But they will have contended. They will have contended for the faith, which is what you really want. God, may we never seek uh, to be passive people of faith. May we actively contend for you and your love in this world. We do love you. And we ask all things in your name. Amen.